Welcome to Resounding Verse, a podcast about poetry and song. Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and a frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening is one of the most famous poems in the English language, written by Robert Frost in 1922 and published a year later in a collection called New Hampshire. Since this is such a famous poem, I'm not intending here to offer any original insights into the poem, but instead just to explore some of the things that I love about it. One thing that strikes me most is the way he handles the sounds of the language. There is such musicality to his poetry, and this is something that he wrote about. He talked about the sentence sounds of language, the sound of sense, It's another expression that he used. And in one letter, he says that one way we can imagine attending to the musicality of poetic language is to pretend that we're hearing what he called voices behind a door that cuts off the words. So the idea here is that, yes, there is sense to language. There's meaning to language. But there's also pure sonorousness. And a beautiful aspect of his poetry is that we get to experience both of these things enveloping one another. There are so many things that could be said about the sentence sounds of this poem. So many wonderful passages. One of my favorites is the only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake, where we get all those S sounds that sound like wind blowing, sounds the sweep of easy. And then the slightly gently percussive sounds of downy flake that have a kind of crispness to them, that bring to the mind's eye an image of of snowflakes falling. But what really stands out to me is something quite simple, and that is how Frost uses punctuation to change the pace with which we read the poem. This is a poem, like many of Frost's poems, that is in an iambic meter. Da-da, da-da, da-da. Whose woods these are, I think I know. So there are four stresses in each line, four poetic feet, and each foot is an I am, a weak, strong foot. And this is the way the entire poem moves. So in that sense, it's it's very structured, it's very regular. But the punctuation requires that we read some lines faster than others. In the first stanza, for example, there's a period at the end of line one, a semicolon at the end of line two, and no punctuation at the end of line three leading into line four. So, whose woods these are, I think I know, period. His house is in the village, though, semicolon. And then, 
he will not see me stopping here, no punctuation, to watch his woods fill up with snow. This is a simple poetic device called an enjambment, where one line leads without punctuation into the next. And what it does here is make us read lines three and four a little faster than lines one and two. The second stanza has no punctuation marks at all until the period at the end of this stanza. So here we're encouraged to read the lines with an even greater sense of fluidity. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. I just said that in one breath, and I think that's what Frost is encouraging us to do, so that our reading of these lines almost mimics the impatience of the horse. Compare this with the final stanza, where there is a punctuation mark at the end of every single line, the only stanza in the poem to do this. And here again, what does it do? It causes us to read with a different pace, to read more slowly, to ruminate on these important final lines of the poem, which talk about leaving, but because of the way they're structured, seem to linger. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. If the structure of this poem is not quite as simple as it first seems, the same is true of its sense, what it's about. This poem is open to multiple interpretations, and if you read books about Frost or look online for information about this poem, you will find very divergent interpretations of the poem. My family has a children's book which includes this poem and woodcuts that show an old man with a beard walking his horse in a beautiful snowy landscape. So if I were to read this poem to my children, they would think that the main character of the poem is someone like Santa Claus, who is wandering through the woods, taking a moment's rest before he goes on about his business, the promises to keep, being uh, giving gifts to children, doing something joyous. So we could imagine this poem, whether we're thinking of Santa Claus or someone else, as one that describes a peaceful moment, a moment of rest, and then moving on to do something pleasant, something the poetic speaker is looking forward to. On the other hand, we could hear some darker undertones in this poem. We might imagine that the speaker of the poem is feeling some kind of tension between an attraction to the woods, this place that provides a sense of respite and rest, and the responsibilities of the real world. And they may be responsibilities he does not want to return to. If you've ever taken a walk into the woods and experienced this kind of peace, you'll know what this feels like. You may feel completely at rest, as though the responsibilities of your life aren't nagging at you. But then there's always a moment when you have to return to your real life, to the emails that are unanswered, to the projects that are unfinished, to the stresses that await you. So we could certainly read this poem as encapsulating that sense of longing, that need for something outside of the humdrum experience of our daily lives. Then, of course, there are those who will hear this as a poem that is about something much darker, that is about death. If you are out in the wilderness on the darkest night of the year and you stay out there, you might well freeze 
and die. And it could be that what's tugging at the poetic speaker, what's drawing him away from his life, is a call towards something beyond this life. No matter how we choose to interpret the tone of this poem, joyful, reflective, even despondent or despairing, it's interesting that the horse is the figure in the poem that draws the speaker back to the real world. A horse is, after all, a creature of the natural world, an animal, not a creature of society. But the horse here is a stand-in for the voices of society that are calling the speaker back, calling him back to the daily routine, to the promises that he has to keep. The horse suddenly shakes his harness bells, and the speaker is thus confronted with these two different types of sounds. The tinkling of the bells of the horse, which seem to represent duty, things he must do, the society he must return to, the obligations that he has to keep, and the sound of the easy wind and the falling snowflakes, which represent this other world where there are no obligations, no duties, no society to nag at you. It's almost as though in being confronted with these two different types of sounds, the bells and the easy wind and downy flake, the speaker has to make a choice. And he chooses to obey the horse and to leave, however reluctantly. Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and a frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. And now, here's a musical setting of Frost's poem by the Black American composer Margaret Bonds. Gives his heart and spells a shell. 
Margaret Bonds lived from 1913 to 1972, and she was a gifted composer, an astonishingly talented pianist, and also a teacher. Her music is experiencing a kind of surge of interest, rather like the music of Florence Price, a composer I did an episode on earlier. In fact, Bonds studied piano and composition with Price. She grew up in Chicago and got a bachelor's and master's in piano and composition at Northwestern at a time when she experienced a great amount of discrimination. For example, she was not allowed to live on campus while she was studying at Northwestern. Later, she moved to New York and established a career as a performer, composer, and educator. For example, she was a music director for many musical theater groups. She established a chamber music society designed to promote black musicians and composers, and she continued to compose herself. She's best known for her vocal works, which included many songs, as well as large-scale musical theater pieces and choral pieces, sometimes with solo voices. One of the most famous is a cantata that she wrote in 1954 called Ballad of the Brown King. Her setting of Frost's Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening comes from 1957, and I first got to know it by listening to a beautiful playlist called Songs of Comfort, which was created by three musicians, the U.S. bass baritone Justin Hopkins, the South African pianist Jean-Minette Cillier, and a tenor named Andrew Richards, who did the video and the audio for the project. Songs of Comfort includes several stunning video recordings of works by Florence Price and Margaret Bonds, and the recording you just heard comes from this very playlist. I have to confess that when I first heard the recording of this song, I was a little perplexed. It struck me initially as too cheerful, perhaps, a little too lighthearted. It moves at a fairly steady clip with the piano playing light gestures that are often staccato, meant to mimic the sound of the bells of the horse, and those light kind of dancing figures continue more or less from beginning to end. I know other settings of this poem that are much more inward and reflective. There's a setting, for example, by the American composer Ned Roram, who incidentally studied piano with Margaret Bonds when he was about 12 years old and remained friends with her throughout her life. Roram's setting sounds more like a prayer than a dance. There's one moment in the song when you hear a percussive rhythm that goes chunk, 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 but that's only in the stanza where the horse rings his harness bells. 
In Bonds' setting, on the other hand, we hear the eagerness of the horse, the jangling of those bells throughout the entire song. But this, I think, is what makes her song so remarkable and so unlike any other setting of this poem that I know of, and that is that she seems to tell the story from the perspective of the horse. And she does even more than that. She dramatizes the tension between the horse that wants to move onward and get on with it and the speaker of the poem who wants to linger. We hear this tension between moving and stopping already in the short piano introduction. You hear staccato notes, rapid notes in the piano, a flourish of 16th notes that Jean Minette-Sidier plays with such momentum, and then things start to slow. The note values get gradually longer, the tempo gradually slows down. You can practically feel the speaker pulling back on the reins of his excited horse. But it's not just the piano part itself that captures this tension between moving forward and pulling back. It's also the relationship between the piano and the voice. When the voice enters, it tends to sing phrases that move ahead and then dwell, that move through a series of fast notes before arriving on a sustained note. Here's Bond's setting of the first stanza of the poem, and just listen for these short melodic gestures that move and then stay, and then move and then stay. The notes that she stays on correspond with words that fall at the end of poetic lines. No, though, here, and snow. One of those words, though, here, isn't held quite as long, and that happens to be the word at the end of the third line of the poem that involved the very enjambment the connector that I talked about before, where there's no punctuation mark. So here Bonds is responding to the fluid rhythm of the poem. And because she makes the word here a little shorter than it might have been, that allows her to compensate and make a word in the middle of a line, the all-important word woods, even longer. And as a result, the entire opening section seems to take more time at the end as we hear woods fill up with snow. Whose woods are these I think I know? His house is in the village though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods pile up with snow. This contrast between rushing ahead and pulling back is strongest in Bonds' setting of the third stanza of the poem. This is the one where the horse shakes his harness bells. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. At the beginning of the stanza, the marking in the score is scherzandissimo, which is an Italian word that means very playfully. And indeed, the music is extremely playful here. 
The piano moves into a particularly high register. It plays little grace notes, little brum brum notes that mimic the sound of the harness bells. And the singer also moves into his highest register on the word ask. Listening to this, it sounds to me like the horse speaking. This is the horse demanding of the speaker, let's get on with things. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. But remember that the speaker of the poem is confronted with a different set of sounds, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. And when these all-important words come in, Bonds responds musically. First, she fuses these two lines together so that they flow into one another just as they did in the poem where there's an enjambment. The rhythm is, the only other sounds the sweep of easy wind. And the line break is after sweep, but we don't even know it's there because the music flows on. Second, we suddenly shift to a piano dynamic, to a slightly slower tempo. The grace notes are gone, the staccato notes are gone, and the tempo gradually slows until we hear the moment of greatest stasis since the end of the piano introduction. comes after this, of course, is Bonds' setting of the final stanza. That stanza with a punctuation mark at the end of each line that moves more slowly, that lingers despite the fact that the words describe the poetic speaker needing to leave, needing to move on. And Bonds' sensitivity to the sound and sense of these lines is just as remarkable. The tempo here says slower than at first. And as a result, we're allowed to bask in these lines and to really feel the reluctance of the speaker. The last note of the song, for example, is sleep, and it's held for a full four measures. If there is a musical gesture that expresses reluctance better than that, I can't think of one. But in a final stroke of brilliance, what does Bonds put right beneath this sustained note in the vocal part? One final sound of the bells, one final nudge from the horse that tells us the real world awaits. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to Once again, 
is Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Margaret Bonds. This recording, again, comes from the Songs of Comfort playlist by Justin Hopkins and Jean-Minette Cellier. If you'd like to access a score to the song, you can look for Louise Toppin's wonderful anthology Rediscovering Margaret Bond's Art Songs, Spirituals, Musical Theater, and Popular Songs, which is published by Classical Vocal Reprints. listen and subscribe to the podcast, go to resoundingverse.buzzsprout.com. Resounding Verse is produced by me, Steve Rogers. Thank you for listening. <laughs>